0: There was a lot of worry, too. Am I going to have to have accommodations in school? Can I really accomplish that with this disease?
1: You can live with this disease with it in the trunk of the car rather than driving the car, but it's always going to be there until there's a
2: cure. Hi, I'm Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer for WebMD, and you're listening to WebMD's Health Discovered Podcast. Today, we'll explore diabetes a condition that most of us have heard of, but there is often confusion between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. After a quick break, we'll spotlight type 1 diabetes, which unlike type 2, is not associated with obesity or inactivity, but rather is a chronic autoimmune disease, usually diagnosed in childhood or adolescence, but can strike at any age and often without warning. In today's episode, we'll sort through the myths and learn the facts of type 1 diabetes, examining its science, the daily challenges faced by those living with it, and the groundbreaking advancements in treatment and technology that are revolutionizing how individuals manage this condition. Whether you have recently been diagnosed, have been living with type 1 diabetes, are a concerned friend or family member, or are just curious to learn more about this condition, you are in. The right place. Previously referred to as juvenile diabetes and sometimes called insulin dependent diabetes, type 1 is a condition where the immune system destroys insulin producing beta cells, a type of islet cell found in the pancreas. The hormone insulin regulates glucose levels in the blood by acting as a key that allows our body tissues to absorb glucose and convert it into energy for us to move and conduct bodily functions. In the absence of insulin, glucose has no way to enter the body cells, keeping the glucose levels in the blood very high. To compensate, the body will try to get rid of what it thinks is excess glucose via the kidneys, resulting in patients frequently urinating and feeling dehydrated. To make up for the lack of glucose absorbed by the cells, the body will convert excess fat into energy resulting in patients losing weight and feeling fatigued. And if left untreated, high glucose levels in the blood can seriously damage the eyes, the heart, the feet, and the kidneys. Type 1 diabetes is not just a medical condition. It's a story of resilience and adaptability, as it requires a lifelong commitment to managing one's health. Joining our discussion are Dr. Jessica Lilly and her very own patient, Jana Taylor. Dr. Lilly is board certified and is the division chief of pediatric endocrinology at the Mississippi Center for Advanced Medicine. Her professional passions include type 1 diabetes and inherited lipid disorders. Jana Taylor is a prior patient of Dr. Lilly who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes nine years ago at the age of 17. Jana is now a fourth year medical student at the University of Mississippi School of Medicine and plans to pursue a career in family medicine both of which have been strongly influenced by her journey living with type 1 diabetes. Jana and Dr. Lily, welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast.
0: Glad to be here. Yes, super excited.
2: Before we start our actual discussion, I always like to ask our guests, what was your aha moment? around type 1 diabetes, and then the actions you took because of this discovery. Jana.
0: After living with it for nearly 10 years, probably the most significant that has affected how I manage my diabetes is really trying to become more proactive in my management rather than reactive, recognizing trends based on, like, Something as simple as how I'm feeling one day, how much stress I'm going through, how much exercise I've gotten. Using that to adjust my insulin doses has really been instrumental in getting good control.
2: And Dr. Lilly, what was your aha moment about type 1 diabetes?
1: For me, the the aha moment and talking to patients about the kind of relentless nature of this disease made me understand that I needed to be a lot more attuned to burnout. People can do everything in their power to, to manage well today, but then tomorrow they have to get up and do it all over again. There are no days off. There's no vacation. There, there are no breaks. When you're talking to patients living with type 1 diabetes and their caregivers, you have to understand that you're talking to people that are often just really tired. Even um, patients who uh, manage extremely well um, on the surface are, are like the proverbial duck that's paddling furiously
2: underneath. So, Dr. Lilly, given that there's a genetic component, if a member of your family has type 1 diabetes... Should all other family members be tested irrespective of whether they're having symptoms or not?
1: So if you have a first-degree relative for sure with type 1 diabetes, getting the screening is important. Often I'll have patients say, gosh, we should screen for this at pediatrician visits. They they should check for this every year. But really, type 1 diabetes can manifest pretty rapidly, and so annual screenings are not helpful. And so looking at the, the genetic screenings at home through clinical trials are the best pathway we have to pick up on early diabetes, and just being very suspicious for symptoms.
2: Well, Jana, what? Or your symptoms tell us your story
0: so my presentation was actually quite classic I'm still amazed though at how easy it was to write off the symptoms and not realize what they were even when at the time I was in a class in high school learning those exact symptoms <laughs> like a week before I got diagnosed it was and I still had no idea Some of the most prominent were hyperphagia, eating a lot of food. Specifically, I craved sugar like crazy. I mean, I was going to Huddle House and getting a waffle like twice a week, which was very abnormal for me. And while doing this, I was losing a ton of weight. And I just wrote this off to exercising all the time and being stressed because I was also dual enrolled in college I was thirsty all the time and urinating a lot and had some pretty dramatic mood swings that were atypical for me as well and just had no clue.
2: How long was this going on, though?
0: I would say probably looking back six months to a year progressively. um, I actually ended up getting diagnosed because I got the stomach virus. My mom also had it at the time, and she got better, and I did not. I just kept vomiting and vomiting for about a week, and then they decided to take me to the hospital.
2: And you were thinking it's just a stomach yeah. virus, not thinking about all these other symptoms. And just for transparency here, tell us who your doctor was.
0: My doctor was Dr. Lily. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> yes. So you went to see Dr. Lilly. Here you talk about you have the classic presentations. But I'll tell you, the other aspect that's classic is people ignore their symptoms Yes, for a very long time, especially for kids. But what were your parents thinking? Did it ever cross your mind? Maybe this is diabetes.
0: It definitely never crossed my mind. And I don't think that it ever crossed my parents' mind either. I mean, I had been healthy my entire life. I had rarely ever even thrown up, honestly. And so my mom, who I was with most of that time, she just thought I had the stomach virus (laughs) that lasted a little bit longer. And so we were all very shocked when we got to the ER and found out that it was diabetes.
2: And then Dr. Lily, do you remember what was your first conversation with Jenna about this?
1: I was so excited to get to take care of Jana because I could tell right off the bat that she was going to do whatever it took to take good care of herself. She has so much optimism, already thinking about what this would mean for the rest of her life, and so I think people at diagnosis often are thinking, "Gosh, like, will my dreams still come true?" Mm-hmm. Um, and Jana was making new dreams um, in, in the middle of, of that diagnosis, and so that's why I love taking care of, of children and teenagers. They're so optimistic and 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 just really you know forward facing and looking to what's next, and you have so much opportunity to encourage and to to get them off on the right foot. And I, I've got a a, a, a few uh, of my patients who. Followed in and her footsteps and her going to medical school and nursing school and, and doing things in healthcare because of their personal experiences. I think it's just wonderful.
2: And Jenna, what was going through your head? Because here you think you just have the stomach flow. And then you're told you basically have an autoimmune condition called type one diabetes.
0: I was just so in shock that I don't even honestly know what was mm-hmm. going through my head initially. Um, I actually was transferred to Le Bonheur from the ER, and I was there for about three days. And I really, it seems like I didn't think about it too much, but it just was like this epiphany. I'm like, I'm going to be a doctor now after saying my entire life that I would never be a doctor. <laughs> but also in the back of my mind, I can't ignore the fact that those same things, you know, that a lot of people think that are negative were going through my head. While I did have these new dreams that Dr. Lilly talked about, in the back of my mind, I was like, can I really accomplish that with this disease? You know, what is that going to look like? Am I going to have to have accommodations in school? Things like that. So there was a lot of worry, too.
2: And Dr. Lilly, what's that process those stages sometimes of type 1 diabetes from the time that someone gets diagnosed to the point that they're living with it for many years as Jana now is
1: right and i think you do see all the the classic signs of grief um, and so people come in and, and, and cycle through all of those feelings. And, you know, at first, they're, they're, you know, you can see people who feel feelings of denial, some people who focus on how unfair it is, and it, it is incredibly unfair. People who deal with bargaining and think, oh, if I just do this just the right way, then you know, maybe I'll have a special case. It's okay for people to feel and acknowledge all of those emotions. Looking at, at, at people like Jana, you can very much live with this disease with it in the, the trunk of the car rather than driving the car. But it's always going to be there um, until there's a cure. And and we're definitely hoping and praying every day that there will be. Earnestly um, hoping to get put out of a job more so than than most people.
2: How did the two of you manage it? How did you two deal with the emotions of the diagnosis and and the emotions of of living now with a a chronic condition?
0: Jen, I'll let you start because you're you're the expert here. I probably didn't realize until years later, like, what an impact that it actually had on me. And really, the way that I've dealt with it is practicing self-awareness and taking care of my mental health. For me, that was seeing a psychiatrist and, you know, getting some, some mental health issues in order and just accepting that they're there and recognizing them as the best way for me to cope with them.
2: It impacts the family as well, Dr. Lily. doesn't it? How do you address that? So certainly for children, the parents play a major role and other siblings can, but even as young adults and adults, if you're diagnosed, it's gonna impact the family. How do you manage that aspect of the disease?
1: I think you have to pay so much attention to the psychosocial component of you know taking care of people and realizing that children don't exist in isolation. You have to manage, you know, sibling relationships, parent relationships. Um, type one diabetes can be incredibly stressful on marriages for parents. If you have one parent who's, you know, shouldering most of the load of, you know, getting the refills and going to doctor visits and getting up overnight to deal with hypoglycemia, and you know, people aren't sharing that that load in a way that makes the most sense for their family, you can end up with a lot of uh, resentment and just um, exhaustion, knowing that all of this is a risk and knowing that this affects everything from family vacations to college plans and and all all of the, it it finds its way to insert itself into everything in life. And so, you know, really taking the time to listen
0: and to build those relationships over time.
2: Jenna, how did your family deal with it?
0: I mean, it was a little bit different for me because I was older. So they Mm -hmm. really gave me the reins in a lot of ways to be as independent as possible. And I don't even know that I've Thank them for all that they did.
2: Well, after the podcast, you'll call Uh them. (laughs) Uh-huh.
0: Them listening might be the first time that they actually hear this.
2: Yeah, that might be a good time, too. Yeah.
0: But my mom, I think of her, and she is probably the least schedule-oriented person that I know. And she just, like, was... Excellent at keeping everything on track. She made sure every prescription was refilled on the day that it was available so that I would never run out of insulin. That was never anything I had to worry about. She was on the phone with insurance companies when she needed to be. I mean, she was so on top of it. And my dad. He did a really great job at just making me feel included. It's really easy to feel different, especially at like family gatherings and stuff like that. When there's a dessert or something and you know it's just going to cause you problems if you eat it, he would sit there and not eat it with me or find ways to make recipes. Like he, he makes a really good apple pie that has way less sugar in it, stuff like that.
2: Well, let's talk about those treatment options because I'm old enough as a clinician to remember it was only really one or two types of insulin early on. We've made a lot of progress over the last 20 years. We've made a lot of progress over the last few years and there's some exciting things in development for type 1 diabetes. Dr. Lilly, can you remind our audience what are the various treatment options for patients living with type 1 diabetes?
1: Sure. I have some cousins who were diagnosed when they were really little with type 1 in the good old days of clear and cloudy insulin. And so you had to take a set amount and eat at the same time and the same number of carbohydrates and really just kind of hope the peak timed with your activity in a way that made sense. And so it was a lot harder to really achieve the glycemic goals and to have the flexibility that you need to have a normal childhood. Um, and then my senior year of high school, Lantus, um, came to the market. And so we could um, do a lot more to Make the natural pancreatic function. And so long acting insulin that lasted 24 hours, just like the normal trickle of insulin the pancreas makes all day, every day. And then short acting insulin that we could give with meals. And so some patients are still on that kind of what we call a basal bolus regimen. So it's at least four shots a day. And so one long acting shot to replace that gradual pancreatic drip, and then one with every meal. And then if there's a large snack, there's, there's more shots that will come in, or if there are high blood sugars to chase, then we're looking at a lot of shots. Then, well, you can also mimic the pancreatic function with an insulin pump. And so that insulin pump delivers a little trickle of insulin. And then you can tell the pump, this is what I'm eating and this is what my blood sugar is. And then the pump is able to calculate and give that dose. Even more exciting, over the last few years, we have closed-loop insulin pumps that actually talk to a sensor that is worn in the arm called a continuous glucose monitor. And those sensors will talk to the pump and, and let the pump know, hey, we're experiencing a low blood sugar. We need to shut off delivery entirely. Or this blood sugar is rising quickly. How about you give us a boost and give a little bit of a sm- Small dose to blunt that rise in the blood sugar. The pump is another piece of technology to manage. It doesn't just do it at all by magic and it still requires a lot of work on the part of the patient or the caregiver. To see the uh, amount of control that we're able to, to achieve with this technology without sacrificing the things that the patient wants to do or having to risk a lot of hypoglycemia, um, it's really been miraculous to see for the last decade.
2: When we return, Jana and Dr. Lilly discuss the misconceptions that still exist around type 1 diabetes.
0: A lot of people, very well-meaning people who cared about me, were saying, what what was it that you ate? Or are you going to have to change your diet to get rid of this?
2: Health Discovered will be right back. And now, back to WebMD's Health Discovered Podcast. I want to find out what's on the horizon. You know, I hear a lot of talk about the artificial pancreas. Educate us a little about what that means as well as what's on the horizon. Sure, wearable
1: technology has gotten I mean, just uh, loops and bounds better than the, the the older insulin pumps that I can remember, or the first very bulky and accurate sensors that you know were on the market that w- would allow patients to take home for three days at a time and then you know use that to make some adjustments. We've gotten a, a lot more user friendly devices. However, this is still something that the patient has to wear and pay for and deal with. Um, and I've had several of my teenagers who you know think that the having to wear something on their body, you know, calls attention to a difference that they don't want to do um, in that developmental stage. And so I think a true cure would be something that we could say, this happens and you never have to think about diabetes again. And so on the way to that cure, I think prevention is going to be huge in um, finding the patients that are at risk for type 1 diabetes and to stop that autoimmune attack before it even happens or really progresses and, and, and allow the patients to, to maintain their own islet cells. We can give islet cell transplants. However, that same immune system is, is there working in the background to destroy the new islet cells. And so at this point, I could you know uh, donate islets to Jana but uh, her immune system would demolish those islet cells within the next week. And so we would be looking at an um, anti-rejection medicine cocktail that would be much more dangerous than having to, ma- to sure. manage with um, insulin. So um, there are different centers looking at different options. What if we gave large volume islet cell transplants or you know, protected these islet cells behind a biologic mesh or some other kind of uh, mechanism to prevent the d- destruction and so give the patient islet cells to last a lifetime without having to take anti-rejection mm-hmm. medications? I mean, that would be a wonderful dream. Or looking at mild immunosuppression and then trying to have some regenerative efforts to get the beta cells back function. There's so many different kind of directions that we're looking at at Cure. So um, I'm very hopeful.
2: Jenna, talk to us a little bit about your patient journey. And I'd love to hear about this concept of the fatigue.
0: Yeah. So I really started out as most people probably do, just on multiple daily injections with insulin on a basal bolus regimen. I was on that for probably a couple of years. I transitioned over to an insulin pump with a continuous glucose monitor. It was an insulin pump that actually had all the tubing still. And i Got really frustrated with the tubing and went back to multiple daily injections. I never got rid of my continuous glucose monitor because it is just life changing. But for me, at that time, I was a girl in college and I, the tubing, just like Dr. Lilly was talking about, you know, body image and stuff like that can really come into play with some of this stuff. I stayed on multiple daily injections for several years. And only within the past probably three or four years, I got back on an insulin pump that does not have any tubing. You change it every three days with my continuous glucose monitor. And now I'm using a closed-loop system where they kind of communicate with each other and it adjusts the insulin based on my blood sugar trends, which I could never go back to anything after using that.
2: Where do you find support? Do you look for you know, support groups on social media? Do you look for other people who are also living with type 1 diabetes? Where is that support coming from?
0: I really get a lot of support from my family, which is interesting because none of them live with type 1 diabetes, but sometimes an outside perspective on how to kind of navigate problems helps and I also am a fan of some of the social media support groups especially with my closed loop system those have really helped me a lot with navigating how to set it up or how to troubleshoot some issues that I've I've seen so I'm I'm a huge fan of those
2: and dr Lily what do you often advise patients or their families where to find some support because at some point they're going to need it
1: Oh, absolutely! And I see this organically happening in my waiting room. You know, where you'll see patients notice, "Oh, you have the same pump that I do," and the parents will start to talk. And maybe one's a little bit farther in their journey and has wisdom to share. And I really love, you know, any kind of support group that um, can can manifest. And so we're in a a very rural area, and so often a patient will be the only person in the entire school with type one diabetes. Diabetes camp has been a wonderful formative experience um, for for kids to not be the only one who's having to, you know, who are having to peel off and check a blood sugar while they're swimming, for instance. There are wonderful um, support groups through the American Diabetes Association. There's a wonderful podcast called the Juice Box Podcast that a lot of my families like to listen to. And so I think finding good, you know, forms of support so you can talk to someone else who knows what it's like to be up with a juice box with a two-year-old at two in the morning uh, or or to know what it's like to have to go with every field trip because there's not going to be a nurse and, you know, all the other kinds of, extra things that most people don't think about.
2: So I guess there are some benefits of being in the waiting room in the doctor's (laughs) office. And I do love those camps that you referenced. I know patients that have participated in those and and we should all work uh, to support those. I want to address the issue of myths around type 1 diabetes. And we were all talking prior to today's podcast about some of the challenges, ironically, with all the advances in type 2 diabetes, that they don't apply to type 1 diabetes. And in some ways, that has caused confusion on the part of people without diabetes. Jenna, what do you find are the, the two biggest myths around your condition?
0: Definitely that it was caused by diet or can be cured by diet and exercise. I encounter that all the time, especially right after I was diagnosed. A lot of people, very well-meaning people who cared about me, were saying, what What was it that you ate? Or are you going to have to change your diet to get rid of this? There's still a lot of, you know, people see me pick up some kind of dessert and they're like, oh, should you really be eating that? Or thinking, you know, if they give sugar-free things to people with diabetes, that that's helpful.
2: What do you say to them? Do you try to educate them? Do you just ignore them? Do you just get mad? <laughs> what, what's kind of your reaction?
0: That's been a journey at first. I was pretty frustrated with it. and But the more that I've progressed with diabetes and then gotten into the medical field, I realized that it's totally unrealistic to think that everybody knows as much as we know about this disease. So all we really can do is gently educate them. And there's a time and a place for it. And there are definitely times that I do. And there are other times that I just kind of brush it off and and go on about my day.
2: I bet you manage it well. You seem very kind and polite. (laughs) I'm not sure everyone else would be. But Dr. Lilly, what do you find are, are some of those biggest myths that still persist today around type 1 diabetes?
1: Jana hit the the biggest one for sure. Type two treatment strategies are so vastly different, and so um, I'll have families who will ask about the once a week shot that their grandmother's taking, or you know, pills, or you know, those kinds of things. And you know, and why, why haven't I talked about that with them? And I think you know, in, in areas where type two diabetes is very prevalent, um, it, like like ours here in Mississippi, we um, have a lot of people who think that they're very knowledgeable. About diabetes, when in fact they're knowledgeable about, about type two diabetes, sure. and so um, and even in the healthcare setting, um, I've had to really empower my patients to know, you know, what they need to do, and so to tell the dentist office that they don't need to hold their Lantus shot for their mm-hmm. oral surgery the next morning, or, or you know, making sure that the the school nurse doesn't skip their insulin because they're vomiting. There's a widespread lack of knowledge about type one diabetes, and it's a, a, a daily battle that I fight as a pediatric endocrinologist, and I know that my patients are fighting as well.
2: A lot of work to be done, as you point out, in educating the public about type one diabetes, a very different condition than type two. We know that living with a chronic condition changes people's lives, no doubt about it, but it can also be in a very positive way. And we kind of have been referencing, Jenna, how it changed your decision of what you wanted to do with your life Tell our audience what you're doing right now.
0: So right now, I'm a fourth-year medical student. I'm so close to being done.
2: Congratulations. And, And why did you decide to go to medical school?
0: Getting diagnosed with type 1 diabetes was really the deciding factor for me. I just had such great care when I got diagnosed. Dr. Lilly being one of the major players in that, And I wanted to do that for other people. Um, I would have never chosen this for myself, you know, like being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. But something that was huge for me was turning it into something positive. And really, it's given me a lot of insight into living with a chronic disease, which is huge for patients, just to feel like, someone can relate to them and when it's their doctor who can relate to them it just makes a world of difference so it's it's a very it's been a very positive way for me to transform my experience
2: wow and this is an audio podcast so people can't see the beaming smile from dr lily when you mentioned you're going into medicine because of doctors like her dr lily how does that make you feel
1: Words can't describe. And so I I, I think that, you know, that's why we get up and do what we do every single day. And to see Jana want to influence patients' lives and just watching her soar has been just the the, the greatest gift.
2: I'd like each of you to kind of leave our audience with two key messages that you want them to know about type 1 diabetes. Let's start with you, Dr. Lilly.
1: So the first thing I want people to know who are living with type 1 diabetes is that you have type 1 diabetes. It does not have you. And so I want you to be able to to live your life and to to reach those goals that you've set for yourself um, and and to reach out and to to get that support so you can stay encouraged and not just get exhausted uh, because this disease can be so exhausting. But it also brings a lot of, you know, kind of hidden gifts as we referenced. Um, I've never known anyone more courageous or accountable or responsible or brave than um, the people that I take care of every day living with type 1 diabetes. You, You just have to be. Take those gifts and leverage them to do what what it is that you are supposed to be doing in this world. So um, be encouraged. That that's that's the biggest thing. The second thing that I, I would like to say is just to not to ignore those symptoms and to try to get that message out to people working in healthcare, And you just never know who's going to be the person to pick up on those symptoms. And so I've, I've had hairdressers who've noticed that they can't get through a haircut without a little one you know, running in and out of the chair. And they've been able to say, have you talked to their doctor about that? And so I, I would seek medical attention early.
2: And to get tested as well, because the Correct. whole point is uh, doing it early on. And Jenna, or soon to be doctor Jenna, but what's your... Advice to listeners.
0: Having diabetes does not mean that you have to give up the things that you love. And it actually took me a long time to figure that out. So I really encourage people to think about that early and find ways to navigate still doing what you loved before the diagnosis with this disease, because it, it is totally possible. And the second one is just recognizing the mental health toll that it can have on both patients and their caregivers, getting that in control early is really amazing at how much that it can change your management and your outlook on having this
2: disease. And finding that emotional and practical support, whether it's in person or online. I want to thank you both. You two are terrific. So oh, thank you. Really appreciate it. And to listeners, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. To find out more information about type 1 diabetes, check out our show notes, where we'll have links to information about this condition on WebMD. I'm Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer for WebMD, reminding you that better information leads to better health. Until next time,